0: Jewish Fangirls presented by JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Nice Jewish Fangirls is a podcast where three Orthodox women discuss all of the fandom things that we are obsessed with. I'm your host. My name is Michal Schick, and I am joined by my co hosts, S.M. Rosenberg. Hi. And Tamar Herman. Hello. And Shavuot Tov, ladies. This is our, or Good Shabbos, I guess I should say. <laughs> this is our seventh episode so that's pretty cool This week we're going to be discussing kind of like I, not exactly revolutionary movements but kind of resistance movements in fiction uh, things that inspire us and that uh, we just kind of think are awesome but before that of course we're getting into our current obsessions I'm gonna put you on the spot tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> What's your current obsession? Oh, no. I said I wanted to go last. Oh, you did? Yeah. Tough. Okay. I'm in charge. <laughs> uh,
1: fine. I, I, I've, I've been obsessed with a lot of things recently, but nothing like that stands out. So I kind of had a bad day today. And uh, it's fine. I ha- I had a good day. I had like three articles that went up, and one of them ended up being a little bit problematic, and I felt badly about about it. It was a good article. I just, whatever, I was upset about it. And... I found myself recently listening to, today and a lot of this week, what's called in Korea a healing song, which is tender music with really inspiring lyrics. So I'm listening right now to, well not right now, not this minute, to one by um, a hip-hop band called Dynamic Duo with it was member Chen. The song is just generally about, like, if your life is hard, like, it'll be okay, like, you can cry if you want to. And I wasn't crying about anything this week but like today was, a, was not a great day so I just I had it on repeat all day today and um, I, I don't think it's like we have like very sentimental kind of sappy songs here but in Korea it's like a genre of healing music specifically for when you're having a bad day you can get comfort in music and I really like that so that's my current obsession of the moment.
0: It's so sweet. When you said that, though, like healing songs, for some reason I got Enya's "Like Only Time" stuck in my head.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't really sound like Enya. Um...
0: So my current obsession is—I'm gonna—I'm gonna dive into this, even though it might be my obsession for like the next forever. Um, because Go for it. there's a book series I love called *The Queen's Thief* by Megan Wayland Turner, and uh, the next book is coming out after like five, six years and it's the fifth book and I'm like incredibly excited and I got sent, uh, an advanced copy of it, uh, right before I left for Israel actually. And I like, I freaked out. <laughs> I was like in my pajamas cause I had just been packing all day and like absolutely had a like almost panic attack that I got this book. Um, but I haven't reread the series in like a whole bunch of years so i i just started rereading it and like oh gosh you know that reread feeling where it's like oh this is amazing and like this book is giving me more more presence as i continue to read it Uh, and that that's the feeling that i keep getting from the first book is called the thief and highly highly recommend the series the problem with the series is that you you have to read it more than once because almost every book has a twist and like a mystery and something going on that like you just don't get the first time and then when you read it again it's it's like reading a different book so yeah i'm i'm totally obsessed with that right now and kind of taking it very slowly and i have the next book on my desk and it's waiting there and i like i'm just so ridiculously excited sm what is your current obsession okay well i
2: i tv wise i've been watching things um but I wanted to go into in a different direction and it's not so much a current obsession but like something happened to kind of re-trigger and remind me of a previous obsession which uh is easy to fall back into which it was started when someone in olaf posted a whole bunch of baseball books and they said that they were cleaning out they were cleaning house and they just wanted to um get rid of a whole bunch of things And they said, if anybody's a baseball fan, you can have any of these books. And there was one book there that was, it's called Sporting News Presents 61 Asterisk, The Story of Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, and One Magical Summer. And the 1961 home run race, which is what this book is about. um, It's about the race uh, between Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle on the Yankees to try and break Babe Ruth's home run record of 60 And For some reason this has always been I've always loved this story And so when I had the opportunity To get this book I really wanted to get it And um, it reminded me Of the movie which I've seen Because it has a foreword by Billy Crystal Who I believe directed the movie
0: And he played uh, he played Yogi Berra I think right Billy
2: Crystal played Yogi Berra? i
0: think
2: so. I, I don't remember honestly I need to rewatch the movie. I recommend everybody watch the movie. It's got you know some kind of you know slow mo slow motion kind of cheese in it, but I think that why this story resonated with me, aside from all the drama of chasing a record and the tension building and all the pressure that goes on, I think what draws me to the story most is the Mantle Maris friendship because I love friendship. And I especially love friendship when it's in a situation where two people are expected not to be friends because um, they're com- they're competing or they have different interests and like Mickey Mantle was this um, playboy womanizer and Roger Maris was this quiet family man and they were friends despite those differences and they were friends despite being competitors on the same they were on the same team but they were competing for the same record. Um, and they never let that get in their way. Um, it's kind of, you know, I don't know. Not to have deal to make a distinction, it's not the same as, you know, David and Jonathan, David and Jonathan um, from uh, Tanakh. But, you know, there's that situation where David, is, where Jonathan is the son of the king, and he's next in line for the throne, but David has been anointed and prophesied as being the next king, but rather than being jealous, um, Jonathan is like, I love you, David. You're the best. Let's be besties forever. And so whenever there's a situation like that, and, you know, people get along despite their situation and despite whatever circumstances might put them against each other, I just, I, I love those kinds of friendships. Yeah. So, yeah, that is... That is my, my obsession at the moment.
0: I'm just like thinking back to learning about David and Yonatan in elementary school or whatever it was and like realizing that the feeling I had was feels.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, Yonatan is my favorite Tanakh character. Yeah.
0: Just, yeah. Awesome. Um. Okay so, okay, so now we are going to move on to our main topic, which is SM, this was your idea so I'm actually going to put it to you too fully explain okay exactly what we're talking about today
2: yeah so i mean we've just been seeing a lot a lot of politics lately and a lot of, of it involves you know just throwing the word resistance around and so we wanted to you know talk about something that you know that's on a lot of our minds but at the same time not talk about it in a real world context because the real world is depressing a lot of people and a lot of people are not interested in talking about politics and we're not interested in talking about politics so we figured that we would talk about resistance in fictional contexts entirely fictional contexts and the different things that you know we liked about that that we like about different resistance movements and just the uh the ideas that we take away from them and what we think made them effective you know Emotionally and also logically, like in the sense of why they were effective um, in their universe of the, of, the, of the book or the movie or the story that they're in and why they worked um, or why they didn't work and what their, what their pitfalls were. All sorts of things. Anything you really want to talk about is fair game.
0: Awesome. So, uh, would you like to start us off with your your movement?
2: Sure. So, I'm going to start off with the Hunger Games, which has a ton of resistance and a lot of problematic resistance, especially toward the end. Um, so, but I wanted to focus on the two two main aspects. One of them is the the media aspect of it, and because I felt like the Hunger Games, I think the Hunger Games was originally. Intended to written as a media satire, um, or that was one of the angles that Suzanne Collins had in mind. Something that I heard. I don't. I don't have a source for that. It might just be you know something that people said, and uh, it might not be verified. It might be fake. But um, and if you look at it as a media satire or just a media critique of or or observations about media and its power, there's just a lot there in terms of. How they were able to communicate during the resistance. They made a lot of these propaganda videos. They had all these slogans. You know, if you burn, if if we burn, you burn with us. And then they had that song, uh, which I found very effective, much more effective than I thought it was going to be when they they turned it into like a real anthem, in the uh, in the th- in the third and fourth movies. There's the song. Um, are you are you coming to the tree? And it doesn't seem to, ha- like, if you look on the on the paper, really, you know, on paper, it doesn't really look like a resistance anthem um, or an empowering song, but the way that they did it in the movie and they, they said it, they overlaid it on top of major resistance action that was going on, it really was, it was very powerful and having, you know, unifying symbols and unifying anthems um, and spreading them through the media was a major reason that that, resistance worked and psychologically speaking why it was compelling to the people in universe and why it's compelling to read about um and then the other part i wanted to talk about was the problematic aspect like i mentioned of just the risk of becoming the thing that you were fighting against um which is what happens toward the end of the hunger games resistance you you see that like all through it, they've been having to make, you know, calculations, and they have to make moral compromises. And there's gray area, and there's no clear right and wrong in some situations, you know. And you have to make a judgment call of, you know, whether this action is is worth it, you know, despite the moral compromise. And but then toward the end, it becomes more and more extreme, and the final act to win their rebellion is. Um, they orchestrate a bombing of children and that demoralizes the other side and basically gets a lot of people to turn on the, uh, on the president and the leadership and, um, and gives the rebellion all the momentum. And that was a calculated move by president coin of the resistance. And it's a very cynical move and it was effective, um, but it's obviously a huge moral compromise. Then she even proposes setting up a new Hunger Games, which is the whole point that they were fighting against was to be free of having to kill each other in arenas. She So she suggests at the end of of the story, of before they they're about to take over, she suggests instituting another Hunger Games, but this time with all the people from the leadership and the capital being forced to fight each other. And so it's just about coming full circle and becoming the thing that you were fighting. And in the end, um, Katniss, spoiler alert, has to kill her. I don't know. Should we cut that out?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the book's been out for quite a long time. Um, okay. Statute but... of
2: Limitations has That's like
0: saying, it. spoiler alert,
1: Harry kills Woolmore. Right. The book <laughs> or Snape killed Dumbledore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I- I'm interested, though, like, the Hunger Games Resistance always kind of I don't know it, it rubbed me in a couple of, of of different ways because on the one hand I, I appreciate how you know realistic and uncompromising Suzanne Collins is with with the way she presents it on the other hand she gets really really morally equivalent and that kind of drives me crazy you know because I mean at the end of like I don't know if you can call her her you know the, the resistance you know district 13 like an effective like they win but you know mm-hmm. th- the ultimate idea of the hunger games is basically that like the good guys and the bad guys are kind of indistinguishable and like there's there's no good side to take and i kind of fundamentally reject that idea um in most situations and even in the book like the way she presents it i honestly don't buy it um, I didn't see it that way.
2: I didn't see it as you know morally equivalent. I I saw it as you know the good guys steadily getting more and and more dirty, you know as it went on. Um, but I didn't see it as that they were that they were equal. I still felt that it was clear that you know that their cause was the one you know worth fighting for. Um, and yeah, and that the yeah so when and when the bad guys do start to become the tyrants when, when the good guys do start to become the tyrants um it's acknowledged as being bad and needing to be taken down
0: i mean it's been a while since i've read it um and i think there are different ways to interpret it
2: yeah i'm basing this mostly on the movies because i really don't remember the experience of reading the third book at all like it's mostly wiped out except for the moment when katniss shoots president coin everything else is just kind of like a, a depressed blur
0: yeah it's <laughs>
2: Um, but the movies, the movies made it um, made it a lot a much bigger impression on me. I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I saw the first movie and really liked it, and saw the second movie and kind of thought that it reflected the book well, but I didn't particularly like the book. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I,
2: I I was kind of annoyed with the second movie for not making certain adjustments that would have made a lot more sense, you yeah. know, and. Because they weren't limited to Katniss's point of view, and they could have f- fixed certain things. And
0: let's face it, I mean, Catching Fire is pretty much the Hunger Games with grown-ups. It's it's not particularly different or creative. It was creative. so
1: unnecessary. It, agreed.
0: Um, I don't know. When I was yeah. reading it,
2: I enjoyed it as a as a book, and I enjoyed it as a movie. But definitely, I think um, the first movie and the last two have more. Interesting stories to tell.
0: Uh, Tamar, what did you think? You're were you also into the Hunger Games?
2: At the time, I was kind of into it, but then I
1: I kind of have a problem with the <laughs> with like young adult uh, dystopian trilogies. Like it's just a trope. I know that was like the first. Big There's just one. so many of them. There's just so many of them right now. So that even if I did remember Hunger Games fondly, Once Upon a Time, at this point, like I I kind of agree more with Michal's interpretation, um, and I just don't find it in like very much my taste anymore and I just looked on the Wikipedia to just remind myself yes that is what happened I didn't like that essentially at the end they end up exactly where they are at the beginning and they don't really make and she never really made clear in the epilogue what sort of government they had they clearly don't have hunger games anymore but like what else came out of it what's the country like or the countries or whatever we are in anymore Um, and that never really satisfied me I just kind of felt that, yeah, book two was essentially book one, and then book three's whole purpose was to show even the good guys are not always good. And then it just suddenly halted. And it was just like, okay, she gets acquitted of killing the of of Coin. Is that who it was? Yeah. She she gets she kills Coin, and then she gets acquitted for sanity insanity. Um, as if somebody can't make a rational choice to destroy a
2: dictator, bring a dictator down. Like, that's kind of yeah, what's so are I don't remember that's, this being, it, I don't think that was in, those things were, those elements were in the movie. So, Did yeah, not- I'm definitely, I am definitely on the side of movies were better than the book in this case, mm-hmm. and um, would recommend movies or reading the books.
1: Um,
2: as like a, a bibliophile, I kind of have a problem with that. But yeah, I guess I know a lot of people do, but I am not afraid to take a stand.
1: <laughs> I mean, sometimes books are—I mean, movies are better than books, but in this case, I don't think either were particularly great. Like, I had no desire to finish the movies. They looked really cool, but it just—it didn't seem but like Jennifer Lawrence is really
2: talented, and she was great in that role.
0: Well, anyway, to to the point of like resistance and stuff, um, I <laughs> I guess I'll say that my my major problem. And this this might just be emotional, honestly, but, like, I, I, I always thought that Gale was a very um, effective character for me, and I, just, I didn't like what she did with him. I didn't like that she turned him into kind of a ruthless killer, you know. Well,
2: I just, I, I felt that she, you know, she didn't make him irredeemable, um, but she did, you know, make him, you know, like like a lot of the other good guys, she made him dirtier which you know makes sense
0: i mean but for katniss he is irredeemable because katniss views him as connected to to her sister's death even though he's not um and there's this kind of odd moral again i, I felt like equivalency there that like gail is not involved in this situation but but katniss decides to just you know to, to Well,
2: because he reminds her of that and it's, you know, I I, I, I think PTSD and triggers are also um, very well treated in the the movies and possibly in the books, but I don't remember so well.
0: No, there's two different things going on, and this is a separate conversation, but I mean Katniss's Mm -hmm. emotional state is different from the justification in the book, and I felt that the book justified Katniss's... I mean, Gale moves to, like, District 2, which is, like, the worst district or whatever, like, the most evil district at the end. Or... I, I don't know. I I, I I, found him very interesting as a kind of revolutionary figure, you know, and somebody who had demonstrated selflessness and, you know, concern for the greater good. Like, he, he, he shepherds all the people from District 12, all the mm-hmm. people who survived to District 13. Like, he does that by himself. He, you know, and then... It just kind of boiled, like one or two decisions, kind of boils him down to like not good enough. It was
2: kind of a uh, you know a too neat way to resolve the love triangle, which was not. Ugh, don't you get know. started on that love. Yeah, triangle. we're not going to go the into worst. that. Um, I
0: can't deal with it anyway. <laughs> so
1: I, I don't remember the books or what I'm about to reference as well as I should, but he kind of reminds me a lot of the characters in Animal Farm who kind of go into things thinking oh we'll do this really well and we'll save the country and we'll save the farm and but you end up doing things like Michal said for the greater good and in my head what's the greater good that's like Grindelwald and not such <laughs> great things like it's you can't he kind of also this is what I was really thinking before the animal farm reference he reminded me a lot of the characters in Holocaust movies who are always the like traitor Jew who ends up going to like help the Nazis because they want to help their family and like I'm not saying Gail is a Nazi I'm just that is not a collaborator he's not a yeah he just he wasn't collaborating but his intentions started out as good and he just everything blurred which I guess is he was possibly the most realistic character because of that because it was never black and white in his mind he was just trying to essentially make everybody survive the way he thought people should survive um, the fact that he killed a lot of people or maybe killed a lot of people or I don't really remember. He was is...
2: involved somehow.
1: Well, he yeah. was. He could have warned her.
0: Um, just, I think that... But he didn't know it was happening, I think. I don't, didn't like, he? Because he, like... A... I
1: thought he found out somehow in the book. I have to not reread these books ever.
0: But <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, Wikipedia. I, I vaguely remember that he was aware... Yeah. Of what was about to happen to her sister.
0: I don't think so. I'm going oh, to Wikipedia, I th- I hold think, on.
1: Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was in Mockingjay, right? Yeah.
2: Uh, the Wikipedia doesn't say it, but I-, I vaguely remember... You could just Google the question, you know, did Gail know that um, Coin was going to kill children? Oh, okay.
1: So it wasn't it wasn't that, but this, according to Wikipedia, this is a direct quote, uh, the strategy used to kill the medics had been developed earlier by Gail. So he had at least developed the way to kill the people. So so that I thought I remembered him hugging her, like holding her back from going into the scene. I must be confusing my dystopian novels. But (laughs) I I just think that he's kind of that archetype of a a good character gone wrong for the right reasons. And a lot of the characters in The Hunger Games didn't really live that way. Like there's no reason whatsoever that coin should decide let's kill like the people who treated us badly except you want revenge and that's a horrible reason to treat people some way you don't like you wouldn't like to be treated um i don't know i just think that the revolutionary aspect never followed through and like they rebelled but we have no idea what happened and uh i mean the the plot never really revealed that either so i don't really feel yeah, I mean
0: Daisy's grew at the end and she has
1: Peta yeah
2: but it, like in my you know but PETA
1: sucked, and Gale was great before he went off the deep
0: uh
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're not gonna get into the team PETA team Gale things not not part of the resistance
0: that was actually a sidebar one thing I was so angry at those books for, like, turning this story about a girl trying to survive into this like nonsense it was romance. Unnecessary. Was like, Why are we doing tea? So unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean, I felt like for the most part, yeah. a lot of that was fan generated, and that like the in the books.
0: Oh, no. I mean, there, there was Come definitely, you the, know, there the was whole definitely some. In book, she's it like, was... Do I love PETA? Do I love Gail? Do I love PETA? Do I love Gail? I love Gail. No, I love PETA. G- yeah.
2: yeah, no, there was definitely some, some of it, but, like, for the most part, it was like, I felt like it was Katniss being like, I have more important things to do. I will deal with this later. Maybe it came off that
1: way more in the movie. In the book, it was definitely like. Who do I choose? I'm a teenage girl, even though I literally have killed people.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I felt like they amped it up so- sometimes in the mo- in the movie more than I felt it in the book. So I guess it's just a matter of perspective.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess romance can be its own rebellion, <laughs> um, and it kind of is in The Hunger Games. I guess that that's part of. The, the point it serves
1: but um, only in the first book like there's no reason she should still be pining for gail in the second book except that he is like an old friend and that should be like a two second thought in her head like oh it would have been nice if i were still the person who could love gail <laughs> but clearly i'm not anymore so now i love PETA. end of story go to have a revolution
2: but that's not how feelings work okay
0: <laughs> anyway um my revolution i guess my my resistance that i decided to talk about um is the writers of rohan or i guess really the nation of rohan uh in J.R.R. tolkien's lord of the rings which god i haven't read since high school even though obviously i've seen the movies since then but i have always loved the rohirim i i first of all i thought that they their name was hebrew because it was Rohirrim, and that's the way you pluralize in Hebrew, um, so so immediately they caught my eye. Um, but the, you know, Tolkien's interesting in that, like he he does kind of have this sort of automatic hierarchy in his in his peoples, you know, and like the people of Gondor are like this very like fine and refined and like they're they're sort of better than the Rohirrim. For some reason. At least that was always my impression. Uh, but I always, you know, I, I mean, I loved Therohurim and part of that, the reason is because they're, they're fighters. they we meet them, they're immediately backed into a corner. They've been invaded by people, by Sa- by Saruman's forces. They think that he was their ally, you know, he was supposed to be their ally. Um, he's also infiltrating Theoden's brain, literally. Um... And yet, they kind of have this, this intense resilience, you know, that that just keeps on going. Like they really don't get a break for the entire story. So basically, you know, once Aragorn and Gandalf uh, and the crew get to Edoras, you know, they they free Theoden and they kind of deal with that, and then they go straight to Helm's Deep, and then they win their first battle against Saruman, and then they have to go straight almost stri- directly to Gondor who you know ignored their calls for help before they go to the Pelennor fields they kick ass and uh you know and then they have to go straight to the the final battle and you know at uh Mount Doom or at the the gates of Mordor and they they really um i mean they're they're kind of portrayed as more of a warrior culture than uh than Gondor is but i you know i still think like there's there's a definite kind of Awareness that this is taking a tremendous toll on the Rohirrim and the way that Tolkien kind of focuses that through um, the characters of, you know, particularly Eomer um, and Eowyn, um, I- I've always really loved. And of course, I mean, no, no conversation about resistance, especially in Lord of the Rings, would be complete without a discussion of Eowyn because she rocks. I mean... She just like she is the <laughs> ultimate like the best, you know, rebel, and uh, it's it's really kind of spectacular the way she she knows what she wants, she knows what she's capable of, you know. It's it's kind of a very it's a very sad story, obviously, because she's suicidal through half of it, but you know the, the way she you know stands up before the the Nazgul, the Witch King, and is just like nope, nope, doesn't matter what happens, I am standing against you and i have the capacity to do so even though you'd think that i don't uh because of my inherent self as a woman and i i've always loved that yeah plus carl Orban is really good
1: looking <laughs> 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 The whole time you've been speaking, I don't know if it shows up on the, if it like turned up on the audio, but I was like <laughs> audibly sighing, just thinking, I have to watch these movies again. I haven't watched them in a really long time. And I'm just like seeing all of it in my head, like, oh, like Helm's Deep, like, ah, oh, that was great. And then, oh, okay, this is so good. So like, I was just sitting here sighing, like, <laughs> really loud sigh. <laughs> But I also thought at one point you said um, you were like saying something like and she just got up and was just like, I am and you paused and I thought for sure you were going to say oh, no man and then well, you didn't. That, that is worth saying.
0: Uh, she says, I am no man. Oh, I love it. Oh. It's funny because <laughs> I initially um, the first time I read Lord of the Rings I did not like A1 that much because I was kind of in this phase where like I was, I didn't like the warrior girl, you know I was kind of against that and uh-huh. To a certain extent, like I, I, still feel that way. How things have changed. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I like Warrior Girls now, but, but I think when I was, especially when I was a teenager, that was the only kind of girl that was okay to root for, and I never felt um, like a Warrior Girl, so it was like, well, I'm just, I'm gonna like root for the evil stepsister, you know, or the like, whatever, <laughs> girl, who, the prissy girl, you know, um, who who likes dresses and whatever, and that's why Sansa Stark is my favorite. Literary character ever. Uh, she's so oh God, good. She's so good, and she's allowed to feel the way she feels, and that's just wonderful. Um, but obviously, you know, as I as I've grown older, I've come to really appreciate Aowen and her complexity, and you know, and and the fact that you know she's not she's not just a warrior girl. Like there is a certain type of warrior girl that I think is lazy writing because it's just like I just want to make a man, but a woman, you know. But Aowen. But she's no, not. she's, she's not like also well, soft. She's soft when she wants to be,
1: and she's strong when she wants to be. And she's wonderful. Yeah.
0: and she experiences a lot of psychological pain and, you know, and and the stoicism and, you know, just just strength with which she stands against all the forces that conspire against her. um which and and honestly, she actually I'm just it's just occurring to me now, but she experiences like serious gaslighting. From, uh, from Wormtongue, and, like, for quite a long time, and, you know, with, with Theoden kind of going slowly crazy, and Eomer running off into the fields and being banished, and, you know, so Eowyn goes through a lot, and she just, she remains strong and, and like, aware of her, of her own strength. And I love it. So I don't know
1: if you guys realized, but when Michal was talking about the difference between Rohan and Gondor, essentially in my mind, it was like the people who like urban people versus the countryside Mm -hmm. people. And also in Hunger Games, like district 12 was also like the least urbanized of this, of the districts. Like that was how it was represented. Like they were the lowest on the totem pole and Rohan's like the lowest of the men in the world. Um, in the world, all the lowest of all the men in (laughs) In all the world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but but that's that's uh, a good point, and
1: and I just thought that was interesting. Yeah,
0: and and something that you know, I I do keep thinking, and and the memory that I have initially is like now the 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 movie, but like, you know, when you have Thaden like. When, when they're like, hey, we have to go help Gondor and Theoden's like, uh, uh, excuse me? Like, where was Gondor when we were just all dying here? Like, that, you know, they haven't been helping us this whole time, and yet they still decide to go at tremendous personal cost. I mean, Theoden dies in, in the Battle of Pelnor Fields. Um, yeah, I Spoilers. What? <laughs> what <are> you... Spoilers. <laughs> no! No spoilers Not for, for that. Like, The Rings. that is not a thing um but yeah no i just i find them as a people tremendously admirable and i'm still like a little bit irked at tolkien for being like but the gondorians are really like the great ones and it's like no no the only good gondorian is faramir and the rest of them can just i don't care
1: (laughs) Well, we never really see any except him and Boromir, but we, but we do see a lot more Rohirrim.
0: Yeah, we do. I mean, well, we, we do get that father and son that Pippin hangs out with. Um, oh, right. I yeah, forgot about yeah. that. Denethor. Yeah, and Denethor, who is... I forgot about oh. Denethor. Well, Denethor, he, was... he doesn't care. Well, he's actually the worst. He I mean, he's, crazy. like, worse than Sauron. <laughs> 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 oh, he's the worst.
1: But, yeah, we don't... I mean, we see a lot more of the Rorheon throughout both the books and the movies. I guess in the, in the books we see a little bit more of like what Faramir and his bros are doing.
0: I mean, again, you know, I think Baragond is the kid's name or the dad's name. I don't know. But yeah, we do get a little bit more um, of a personal touch in the books, but yeah, for sure. We've, I mean, we've spent like, you know, the battle of Helm's deep with, which is only a couple pages in the book, but it's still, you know, a very emotional thing. And we do spend like the entire First book of the two towers with them or most of it and and yeah and, and those characters carry through into Return of the King really well and you know right and then that we just kind of you know Gandalf and Pippin run off to Gondor and it's like alright let's meet all the new people
2: again yeah this is not about um, Rohan or but I felt like we cannot talk you know we can't talk about resistance in Lord of the Rings and not mention the, uh, the fires mm. and the uh the whole beacon system of calling for help yeah. because this is nice Jewish fangirls and the fires and everybody who saw them thinks who saw them and who's had a yeshiva education thinks of the, uh, the Rosh Chodesh, the way of spreading the uh, the news of the new moon and the new month um, from the center of Israel um, to the outer regions. And yeah, and it's just a gorgeous and beautiful scene. But it has nothing to do with Rohan, Well, it does. Really.
0: They're calling Rohan. so. <laughs> I mean,
2: they're calling for Rohan. But they're calling for, like, anything. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: um, but I guess, I mean, in terms of resistance in Lord of the Rings, just a sidebar, um, another one of my favorite parts is the scouring of the Shire, when, like, you know, they all...
2: It's not in the movie, so I don't know about it. It's
0: the best part, but it's also just like,
1: where did this come from when you see it after the movies, when you read it after the movies? So I read
0: the books first, and like, or almost, I I, I was like halfway through Return of the King when I saw Fellowship of the Ring movie, but, um, because I was actually, I was very determined because I like knew from Harry Potter that like, I was upset when people didn't read the books before, and I was like, I'm not going to do that for Lord of the Rings, and you know, my... Fourteen-year-old self was very determined, um, but I I I love the scouring of the shire. I adore it. It is so, um, it's so cathartic, and it is so. It it really gives you that like, I have to say, like it's it's that sense of like <laughs> that you get, <laughs> which is the Hebrew word for like unity, and but but it's also kind of used in a context of like everybody working together and like accomplishing something. And, you know, just being really awesome together. So, yeah, I always I, – I definitely get, like, that Achtis feeling from The Scaring of the Shire. The
1: first time I read the books – I think I, I saw the movie and then I read the books. I saw The, the Fellowship of the Ring and then I saw the books. And th- – I saw the Fellowship of the Ring and then I read the books. And the first time that I read The Scouring of the Shire, I was just like, what is going on? Is this really how Lord of the Rings ends? (laughs) I was like very confused. And there's a lot of excess pages there that I don't think were particularly necessary, like to get to the end part of it. I was like, let's give it to Saruman. But um, as you say, it was nice to like get like bring everything together. Like, we are ending the revolution by really clearing out everybody, which we didn't see with the Hunger Games.
0: Yeah. And it is kind of like, the it's kind of the real final boss, you mm-hmm. know, like obviously Sauron is, I guess, the, the big boss theoretically, but, but I love that the hobbits own trials at the end are like equally, if not more important to mm. them, you know, and it's kind of all about in a silly way. It's like what, you know, what they learned and the strength that they gained, but, but it really is, you know, they are able to, to defend their own homeland you know because of because of what they've experienced and that kind of proves to be the most important thing and I just always found it beautiful so Tamar what is your revolution of choice my revolution was
1: not made into big blockbuster movies but it should be Um, (laughs) it is it's the Crown Duel book by Sherwood Smith or Crown Duel series because it was originally published as two books and then combined I don't know if either of you have read it I don't expect most of our listeners to have read it it's a fantasy series it's a YA fantasy series that takes place in a not an alternate reality but another planet not in our realm of reality and essentially humans have have moved from Earth to this fantasy world with magic. And the natural inhabitants of the world, the indigenous people, so to speak, are tree-like beings and literally just called the tree folk, the, sorry, they're called the hill folk. Uh, and the hill folk essentially decide to make humans better and they give them all these magical uh, spells to use and they give them all these ways to uh, essentially heat their homes without having to burn wood and pretty much these indigenous creatures make humans' life better. The story begins when the main character, Mel, she's a daughter of Count. She, her family's land is completely desolate because the king is, try, is just essentially robbing everybody. And it turns out that the reason he's trying to rob them is because there are these really great trees, essentially really gorgeous redwoods, but they're called colorwoods. So there are blue ones, there are gold ones, there are silver ones, green ones. And the deal with the hill folk is that you don't cut down these trees. You can collect wood that has fallen and make like really gorgeous tables and stuff from them, but everything that anybody owns that's wooden is an antique. So this is like super environmentally uh, like friendly and stuff. And so so anyway, we find out shortly through the book that Mel's family is being taxed to the hilt and they have to tax their the people who live on their land to the hilt because the king wants to essentially co- take over their land saying, oh, you haven't paid your taxes and chop down all the color wood trees, which would end up, like, causing a war with the magical creatures who have saved humanity on this planet. So, not in this book series, but this is just a side point. In, in her other book series on the same planet, you kind of, you actually interact with, like, people traveling between, like, modern Earth and that realm, uh, which is kind of cool, but they're, they, like, are humans from Earth, so, like, once in a while in other series they reference Earth, and that's just a side point. But... Um, my, my thing about it was aside from the fact that's like an environmentally friendly revolution because they essentially go take arms up against their king because A, he's robbing them blind and B, because they want to defend the people who have helped them and helped the humans on this planet thrive. Um, it's not a super effective rebellion. This is like a poor land with people who have been taxed for years upon years like he's been a king for like 20 years and um he's very greedy and he doesn't really seem to care what people like and care about his people at all and that kind of resonated with me right now um but the end of the revolution comes when you find out that the her like arch rival who's been essentially like hunting her down is really a revolutionary himself but instead of revolting by literally taking up arms he's been slowly trying to manipulate politics against the king so that people go against the king. And I just think it's a really good way of kind of showing how politics and, uh, like, guerrilla fighting can both be used as revolutions, um, and they can both be used as, I mean, sorry, guerrilla warfare and, uh, and like, you, I don't know what I'm saying. I have it written down, but it's really messy. Um, that, both, <laughs> that both actually guerrilla warfare and politics can be used to change things that you don't like. Uh, But at the end of the day, like in the book, things end when it comes out that the person who is like a turncoat, it turns out that like he comes and essentially rises up the whole country and makes them come up and and arm against the king. Um, This sounds really stupid, but if you read the book, it's pretty good. I don't know if it's as good as it was when I was 12. I reread it like every year, so it's still great to me. But it, it does a really good job of showing how people don't really know what's going on in their government. And you might think that things are one way. Like, literally, the, the main character, Mel, ends up finding out... Fine, She ends up finding out that essentially everything she knows is wrong. Like, she thought just the king is greedy, but no, the king wanted these trees so that he couldn't enrich his country. Because if he cut them down, he can make a fortune overseas because they're one of the only places with the trees. Um. So, like exporting goods to make a lot of money. That doesn't sound at all familiar. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know. He just, he, he definitely reminds me of a certain world president right now. Um, and people taking to the streets literally to defend their homes and their, their moral, moral values, which in this case are pretty much environmentalism. Uh, just really resonated with me recently. I haven't reread it since the election but it's 2017, so that means I'm due for my yearly read. But yeah, and there's, like, oh, and so, like, how we were talking about Hunger Games, how kind of the the romance plot gets in the way of the revolution. So in, in the books, she ha- the book's called Crown Duel, but it was originally Crown Duel and Court Duel, and in Crown Duel, Mel and her, like, rival, Shevrit, they, like, he hunts her down, and then you find out in the second book that, like, he's not such a bad guy. So the first one takes place essentially, uh, like, as a revolution on the fields and like guerrilla warfare. And the second book is actually taking place at court and learning how their government functions and how she could become a part of it. So that was really cool. And I didn't have the same sense, like in the hunger games that you kind of just like, end, and then 20 years later you find out something like this one, you actually like when the book ends, you're just like, Oh, everything like came to a close and that was great. And we found out how your revolution worked and we found out how people were settled and how the government runs now. And it was a really well-written revolution.
0: I mean, first of all, I kind of, I I do like that I, idea. It's not a new idea, but, you know, people finding themselves within, I guess, revolutionary situations or potentially revolutionary situations that they don't understand, you know, or, or that they are misinformed about. I think that that's definitely relatable nowadays, you know, um... And I know it, it does kind of. I mean, obviously, it reminds me of real life, but it also reminds me of kind of like, like Danny in Game of Thrones, and kind of finding her way. I'm not sure if if Crown Duel kind of has has a more positive view of governance than than uh, Game. It of does Thrones, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so that's nice. <laughs> but but it definitely is that kind of idea. I mean, I am assuming that you know you can that governing itself can be revolutionary right that like does that make yeah sense?
1: so i mean it's this is like a little bit of a spoiler but in so in the first book you have like the like the king who's a tyrant and in the second book you have a new king coming into power and a big difference that like she notices when she goes to court so the first time she I don't want to give spoilers because this is a book series that people, like, aren't familiar with. (laughs) So essentially she goes to court in both books and the experience with the old king is very different than the one with the new king. And the old king, she noticed, has a very big throne and he's clearly the center of attention. And the new king, when he is essentially holding court, he sits at a low table. I think he sits on a cushion and, like, he's, like, sitting there... uh, and, like, people are allowed to, like, roam freely and everybody in the previous version of the court, like, they had a, a t- they had to hold court and, like, stand there and watch the king as petitioners came. And in the second book, like, people are able to freely roam and get food and chit-chat with each other as essentially business of running a kingdom is happening. Uh, and, and it was a very interesting way to show the difference between a good leader and a bad leader. And Mel is never supposed to be a revolutionary. She gets involved... Because her brother is essentially leading the guerrilla warfare, and she gets caught in a trap, and she gets found by the enemy, uh, and they were holding her hostage. So it, it's also kind of a story of a woman who's has to find get back to her safe home, which I kind of don't love. But she grows into like a person that can take care of herself. Um, but like it's showing a lot of the world through the eyes of somebody who has really great liberal ideas and doesn't really know much about the world which is something that I think a lot of people struggle with also
0: yes (laughs) I I don't know I mean like that's basically Danny's next title (laughs) (laughs) mother of dragons you know breaker of chains person who needs to learn a lot about politics (laughs) So, so they there's like a very who needs
2: politics when you have dragons though (laughs)
0: <laughs> so they don't have dragons. They
1: just have color wood trees and hill people, and mm. hill folk. But there is like a really good way in the book that they show how politics happens. And in the second book series, there's a correspondence between her and another character. And part of it takes place by them leaving uh, like kind of like not post-it notes, but like leaving like bookmarks in books to each other. And the person she's writing to is very intelligent and he's always leaving her chapters from books that are about history of the past and how it relates to the present. So I just think it's a really brilliant way to teach about politics. And like, it's a it's good way for the author to be able to essentially give the lessons politics, like give the, it's a good way for the author to give the readers a lesson in the politics of that world in the past and the present at the same time. And like show what, what the characters think is a good government and in the end there's a good government, so everything works. And there are like sequel novellas, so I know that everything works.
0: Um, do you guys have any kind of runners up for your revolutions that inspired? Yeah,
2: I, I have a couple of them. I'll I'll just talk about them real quick. So I wanted to give a shout out to Babylon Five, which I'm currently rewatching, and I am seeing all the themes of resistance and um because it seems to me like it's all about cycles and the rise and fall of powers and, um, choices and consequences between all of these interactions, and it seems like every alien race is resisting some other alien race or force at some point in time, and sometimes, you know, this one has the upper hand, sometimes that one has the upper hand, and then there are factions within, um, Within the races themselves, like among the humans, there's um, the Mars colony wants to break away, and there's a Mars resistance and an underground. Um, There are telepaths who want to break away and be free from the normals, Um, and they have their own underground railroad, and then there are other alien races like the Minbari, they have they're they're fracturing along their cast lines, and like the warrior cast is trying to gain power. and there's all sorts of things going on. Um, and it all just it goes back and forth, and the power is never really constant, but it gives you the sense of that. The good guys generally tend to win, um but it and but if you do if you do bad things, they will come back to bite you. Your mistakes do come back to haunt you um but your good deeds are rewarded as well not always but there is definitely that kind of optimistic feeling which is why i enjoy watching it now um because it gives me you know hope about you know there may be a long road ahead but eventually things will turn out the way we would like to, them to be um and i also wanted to give a quick shout out to deep space nine to the bajoran resistance which i felt was Really interestingly well done, um, especially through the character of um, Major Kira Nerys. Um because the Bajoran resistance basically happened before the show began. So she had all the and she was a resistance fighter. And that's her background. And a lot of the time being in the resistance meant being a terrorist. Um, and that, those were the techniques that they used to throw the, uh, the Cardassians, not to be confused with the Kardashians. <laughs> uh, there's an alien race that came first, the Kardash- the Cardassians, um, <laughs> who took over the, uh, Bajoran homeworld and oppressed the people, put them in death camps, um, like, really awful stuff, um, and, you know, they had their own mentality of, like, you know, the Bajorans are backward and we need to do this to save them from themselves and whatever, um, And then, um, Kira, who is fantastic and fabulous and resourceful and brilliant and kick-ass. Um, so she was one of the resistance fighters, um, but the show doesn't glorify her for it all the time. Like, there's, it's definitely one of those, um, one of those shows that gets into the costs of resistance, like Hunger Games does, of- you know where were the gray areas, and what were the moral compromises that you had to make? and how do you you know what is, what do you feel about it and, and how does how does that impact you and the way that you see it um, looking back? And like her feeling, it comes up in a few episodes, you know of the it goes into her past and things that she had to do and the consequences of those things. Um, and her feeling seems to be that they were necessary because they worked. So in that sense, she doesn't regret them, but it doesn't mean that it's easy for her to live with all the things that she did. And just because the ends justify the means doesn't mean that you can't regret that those means were necessary. Hmm. And I I like that about... I mean, I like a lot of things about her character, um, but I, I like that she lived with that kind of complexity and those kind of moral gray areas. Um and she wasn't always, like, entirely sure of herself, you know, even when she felt she was doing the right thing.
0: Cool. Yeah, um, I guess my, uh, my runner-up, or whatever, (laughs) um, would be the, the DA, Dumbledore's Army, in Harry Potter, um, yeah, I've always had such more, I, like, I, I, I love book five, and... That is one of the main reasons why, because I just, I really, I mean, I I think the DA is, it it gives me again that Achtesi feeling that, you know, (laughs) just things are happening because we're working together and that, you know, it's, it's a resistance that is also a positive resistance. I don't know if it necessarily ends that way, but it, you know, is certainly, it's about protection and it's about self-protection and, and personal responsibility really and yeah and i love it um tamara do you have any runners up i was gonna say harry
1: potter because i didn't realize oh, you were
0: sorry no it's fine i had i had to say the da i just had to Come on. Just give me a few <laughs> seconds i'll think of something
1: i don't know my brain's in like weird places right now
0: you don't have to, star wars I mean, like, you know
1: no i don't like star wars enough i was, th- I thought Michal would
0: yeah, oh, happy. I guess
1: I can talk about something that um, I have mixed feelings about, so I'm not going to go into too detailed. But uh, I really liked Avatar: The Last Airbender. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't like kids shows, so I didn't enjoy it as much as a lot of people like, made me think I would. Uh, but I think that they did a really, I mean, it was it was a lengthy show, and they did a really great job showing how people are people and how revolutionaries are essentially just people who want to live their lives and that, like, a bad leader can really ruin the whole world and really ruin people's individual lives, whether they're people who they've never met before or people who literally are their family members. And I just think that over the span of the series, they explained quite a bit about how people get to the places they are to make them rebel against leadership.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And, I mean, The Legend of Korra also has its... Definitely has its share of rebellion. And... I didn't watch
1: Legends of
2: Korra. I, I,
0: I know. <laughs>
2: it's good. Um, I, I think the last two seasons are, are the best, but it's still a kid's show, but it's geared a little, I feel like it's geared toward the people who liked Avatar, so like, it, assuming that they're a little older now, so it's it's more at a, like a teenager level, but it's that's still probably not the maturity level that Tamar really wants. <laughs>
1: Not the maturity level. I just hate the stupid. We're gonna teach you a lesson because we're good for teaching kids moral lessons. Like I don't like that. Like we don't. Yeah, need to I'm teach not kids.
2: sure that there was so much moral yeah, lessoning.
0: Not as much
2: in Cora. It was more yeah. of a story. Yeah.
0: Um, but but yeah, in that show, definitely it it, it is. Um, you know, it's never to the point of like you know a, a an out and out war or an active rebellion. But I mean, I think it's it's a theme both through the the heroes and the villains. You know thinking of season three especially um it it does have a lot of of those overtones so thank you so much for listening to this episode of nice jewish fangirls you can find us at jewish com. you can also find jewish coffeehouse on twitter i think that's uh jewish ch or something like that just search for it you'll find it uh nice jewish fangirls is also on twitter uh at mm. Nice Jewish Fangirls is also on Twitter at Jewish Fangirls. We didn't have room for the nice, unfortunately. You can find me on Twitter at InkAsRain, and you can find my writing at Hypeable.com. Tamar, where can we find you?
1: Most of my writing can be found at Billboard.com, but actually today I had two articles go up. My Broadway Con article went up on Pace Magazine's website, and I had an article about what I learned from Korean dating culture go up on the Forwards website. So if you guys want to check that out, feel free to let me know what you think. Uh, you can let me know by tweeting at me at Tamar underscore underscore Herman there are two underscores there so please make sure to put two because otherwise some random person who doesn't actually respond to tweets will just see
2: them and I won't
0: uh and SM where can we find you um you can find
2: me on Facebook and on uh Twitter at Floating Spirals and on my Amazon author page if you want to read any of my fiction awesome
0: you can also find nice Jewish fangirls on Facebook. We now have a Facebook page. Just search for nice Jewish fangirls. We live stream apparently from awesome Broadway events, <laughs> um, where Tamara is sitting in the audience for probably the most coveted panel. I'm assuming at BroadwayCon. Just, just. The um, actually,
1: there was. Uh, so I mean, I, some Michal's referencing that I, I live streamed from Con Hamilton, the next administration panel. Uh, shortly after the Hamilton panel in the same area, there was the first look uh, stage where they had uh, like teasers for some of the new shows and. And honest to God, like the best moment of Broadway Con was when the two stars playing Anastasia and Dimitri from Anastasia got up on stage and he sung a song called My Petersburg and she sung Journey to the Past and it was just wonderful. Mm. Um, and like Hamilton's panel, pretty much, I mean, it's in my article, but pretty much the whole day at Broadway Con on the third day, which is Sunday, and I went on only on Sunday because I didn't feel like dealing with Shabbos, whatever um so sunday they were all essentially talking about the ban and um on immigration and so like everything was referencing immigration and like immigrants
2: get stuff done uh
1: that was definitely a big point um anastasia uh kind of uh i don't remember if it was the actress or who is the director or playwright i don't remember who it was um who said it but essentially they compared anastasia walking across Russia to find herself like the immigrants journey to find who and what they are. And I thought that was a really great point. And Anastasia is a, like a beloved movie and hopefully a beloved musical. So it was just great. And it was a really inspirational day.
0: Awesome.
1: But yeah, I live streamed Hamilton's <laughs> panel. <laughs> you watch it. It's on our Facebook page.
0: And if you would like to get in contact with us at, you know, somewhat longer length, you can email us at NiceJewishFangirls at gmail.com. And please, 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 please leave us a review on iTunes. We don't have any reviews on iTunes yet. Just search for NiceJewishFangirls, and it's not like I check it every day obsessively or anything like that, so we'll know immediately when you leave a review or anything. Um, But yes, we would all really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. Live long and prosper, and we'll speak to you soon.